May these words serve you. So today is Paramahansa Ramakrishna's birthday. Takur, we call him, and that's Bengali for God. So that's an interesting claim, you know, that to say this person, this individual, this human being, who walks and eats and sleeps and talks and goes through the motions of being a human being like anyone else is in that same breath, God. How is it that the Christ can be an imminent transcendent? How is it the Christ is God? You know, it's easy to think of the Christ as like a particularly talented yogi who has a particularly deep appetite for spiritual life and has attained the highest level of spirituality available to a human to attain. And as such, he ought to be venerated. That's easy, right? To see the Christ as a perfected yogi. And for me personally, that's the only way in which I've really interacted with the Christ figure as just the greatest, best, most role model of a yogi there is. But he's more than that. You know, the Christ isn't just a great yogi. He isn't a saint. The Christ is God. And what does that even mean? You know, and to claim that Buddha is God, Bhagavan Buddha is as much an avatara as the Christ, that Rama and Krishna are both avatars, um, that Ramakrishna is the avatara of the modern age. Like that seems like too tall an order and too grandiose a claim for the mind to accept, let alone understand. So what is Ramakrishna? Now, Vivekananda wrote prodigiously. He spoke and wrote prodigiously. So many things are attributed to Vivekananda. So much writing, you know. There's a nine-volume set, the complete works of Swami Vivekananda, with letters and interviews. Um, there are all these lectures that he gave that got recorded in the books Raja Yoga, Karma Yoga, Bhakti Yoga. In those books, he talks about what a true teacher is. He talks about what true spirituality is, true renunciation. He talks about every topic under the sun, but for one topic. Ramakrishna, he's notoriously silent about his guru. And when asked why he doesn't speak more about Ramakrishna, he says quite simply and quite movingly, it's because I don't understand him. You know, Vivekananda, the foremost disciple of Paramahansa Ramakrishna, who is in many ways the successor of Ramakrishna, who is in fact Ramakrishna himself, as we'll learn about in a few moments. He himself, Vivekananda, could not speak about Ramakrishna because he, in his own words, did not understand the phenomena that was Ramakrishna. You know, Effie was just saying earlier, one cannot approach the formless except by way of the form. One doesn't get to God except by way of Christ. Ramakrishna would often say, or not Ramakrishna, but the other direct disciples of Ramakrishna would often say, if you want to understand Ramakrishna, read Vivekananda. You know, one can only start to glimpse the depth and profundity of Ramakrishna through Vivekananda in some sense. He's the interpreter and the deliverer of Ramakrishna's message. He stands to Ramakrishna the way Paul would stand to Jesus. He, like Paul, traveled the whole world spreading the good news. And his news was that you are innately divine, that there is a oneness of existence in all beings, and that there is a universality of religion. That was the central message of Paramahansa Ramakrishna. And that blazing torch of universality, of syncretism, of all faiths as so many paths to God, that was the burning brand that Vivekananda brought with him to the West to light up the whole world in a wonderful bonfire of spirituality. But he was silent about Ramakrishna. In another place, he says, imagine someone making a sculpture, like a sculpture of Shiva, but he was an inept sculptor. So if you try to make a sculpture of Shiva, what you might end up with is a sculpture of a monkey. <laughs> Not quite Hanuman, but like some other thing. And so the idea here is, if he spoke about Ramakrishna, he would make a caricature of him. You know, he knew that his words could not do justice to the profound mystery that was Ramakrishna. And in yet another place, Swami Vivekananda says, I know it. I don't believe it. And I don't just claim it, but I know it. That Paramahansa Ramakrishna is the greatest of all avatars. Big kind of claim, you know, of course, he's the direct disciple of this person. But he says, it's like, uh, I know it to be true. Now, this is a remarkable claim, given that Paramahansa Ramakrishna um, to Vivekananda was not the avatar until the very last moments of his life. 
You know, so Vivekananda, you have to recall, and I think today I'll just kind of talk about Vivekananda because if he won't talk about Ramakrishna, who are we to even say anything about Ramakrishna? You know, but let's say a little bit about Vivekananda's relationship to Ramakrishna because it's going to be kind of anecdotal. It will kind of express my relationship, not just to Ramakrishna, but to Rama, to Krishna, to Jesus. You know, once upon a time, I was of the opinion that Jesus and Buddha didn't actually exist. You know, I was of the opinion that Jesus is an archetypical myth that there were great teachers in the Levant, perfected yogis, and all of those great teachers were kind of, you know, homogenized under the umbrella of the archetypical yogi, Jesus. And so I was kind of like a Gnostic in the sense of like the docetic Jesus. Jesus as not an actual person or a human, but as a vision. Just remember, Paul never saw Jesus in real life. He had a vision of the Christ in Rome. And it was through that vision that he delivered his message to the world. You could even say it was Paul that started Christianity. You know, Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church to Peter. But wasn't it Paul that kind of formed the foundation, sending letters out into the world, inviting Gentiles and everyone into this wonderful tradition that would otherwise have been a cult movement restricted to the Levant, which incidentally, uh, Angela is a direct descendant of, you know. So what would have otherwise just been an ethno religion, which is a term Angela taught me yesterday, was now a global religion. So Paul in many ways, was interacting with the vision. So I, of course, in my naivety thought, oh, okay, well, that's enough for me. Jesus is like Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, Ben Kenobi appearing to Luke Skywalker, a kind of like bodhisattva that appears and teaches and revitalizes the, the traditions of the Levant and the world through Paul. I didn't need Jesus to be an actual person because you see, I'm resisting the idea that a man can be God. I'm resisting the idea that the transcendent can be imminent in so imminent a way. That just didn't quite, I couldn't feel that. That wasn't true for me yet. You know, I still felt, despite my professed non-duality, I still felt in my own spiritual life and my own experiences in sadhana, a kind of duality, a split between the transcendence and the imminent. I was either in an absorbed meditation state or walking around the world like a drunken monkey. I had not yet reconciled the two. And because I had not felt it to be true in me, I couldn't see how it could be true for someone like the Christ. So really, the point of what I want to convey today is what happened to me with my relationship to the Christ and to Ramakrishna and to Rama and to Krishna and to Buddha and to Shankara, to Chaitanya, to all the avatars. And so what happened to me, I think, the way to describe it is to kind of understand what happened to Vivekananda because it was Vivekananda who sold me. Now, I'm not sure about Ramakrishna. You know, I, I've never been. What is it, a centric kind of man in, in Bengal in the 19th century, you know, just a kind of eccentric priest in some village in Dakshineshwar, uh, who was kind of a charismatic person to be sure, who had profound teachings to be sure, but the avatara, I don't know about that. Now, when young Narendranath met Vivekananda, he had this, sorry, when young Narendranath, who would later be Swami Vivekananda, when he met Paramahansa Ramakrishna, he had the same reservations at first. He was unwilling to accept Ramakrishna as the avatara because he didn't understand what it would mean for someone to be an avatara. In fact, in their first meeting, Vivekananda, young Narin, put it quite bluntly, sir, have you seen God? That's it. He was told that this man had regular visions of God, that this was someone who's walking the talk. And so young Narin decided to test Ramakrishna and simply asked him point blank, sir, have you seen God? And Ramakrishna, without missing a beat, said to him, yes, I see God more clearly than I see you now. And the next thing he said was even more important. And you can too. One can see God and talk to God. You know? And notice that the Christ all through the Bible is saying the same thing to people. Had ye but faith, you know, ye are, these and even greater works shall ye do. For I am going back to the Father, John 12, 14. You know, he's always saying to, to, to us that we are able to do what he did. That we can go to the Father. And he keeps telling us to he keeps saying, look up, look up, it's not, it's not me, look at the, you know. So Ramakrishna himself said that to Vivekananda, young Narin. And Narin was so moved by the truth in Ramakrishna's words. And more than that, he could sense, just intuitively, the depth of Ramakrishna's love for God. And that was enough for young Narin to accept Ramakrishna as a teacher. Not as an avatar, not yet even as a guru, but just as someone he ought to look up to and visit and talk to and be interested in. He had his life back home. He was a singer, 
you know, he was performing in bands and singing holy songs. He was also um, involved in a religious reform movement called the Brahmo Samaj, which tried to kind of integrate Christian ideals into kind of Hinduism and do away with idol worship and superstition and Vedic ritualism. So he was part of that movement. And he was British educated. He was inundated in the Western framework of rationality, scientific reasoning and all of that. But because ultimately he's Indian, and you can't take the spirituality out of Indians. He was deeply interested in spiritual life. It was the core of his being. And Ramakrishna was someone he needed to learn from, at least see regularly. So that's what would happen. He lived in Calcutta and he would come to Dakshineshwar. You take a little ferry and you come out to this village. And in Dakshineshwar, you know, there's that temple, the Kali temple of Dakshineshwar. And he would go and visit Ramakrishna and just sit and look at him. And in the beginning, actually, Narin Vivekananda was an antagonist. He used to kind of, make fun of Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna would have an ecstatic vision and be talking to God. No one else would see it. It would just be Ramakrishna talking to God. And Vivekananda would say things like, oh, it's just a hallucination. And he would say, that's not um, real. It's just hallucination. And he actually even took a class in hallucinations to prove it. He was saying, oh, it's just your nerves. Your nerves are fried. You know, you have a delicate constitution and it's just, it's not real. These things aren't real, you know? He didn't believe in, yeah, he didn't believe in Ramakrishna's visions because remember, he's a very grounded and rational person, but he wasn't an atheist. He was deeply spiritual. It's just that his intellect wouldn't allow him to blindly buy into things via sentiment alone. That's the kind of, and other disciples of Ramakrishna, other followers were kind of like peeved about this. You know, they were, they were a little offended. They were like, here's this young upstart and they had accepted Ramakrishna as God. And here's this fellow calling his visions a hallucination, challenging him, testing him at every step of the way. And you know what Ramakrishna said? You leave young Narayan alone. This is a sign of his manliness, his strength, Ramakrishna said. And he would say it somewhat bizarrely. I guess it's a kind of reference that's lost on us in this culture. But he would say, Vivekananda, young Narin, he wasn't yet Vivekananda, Narendranath is like a male pigeon. You know, apparently, if you grab the beak of a male pigeon, it will quickly pull itself out of your hand. Uh, it turns out, like, if you hold the beak of a female pigeon, apparently, it'll just be kind of calm and chill. I don't know how true this is. It's kind of a regional reference, I guess. But he would keep calling Rama, uh, Vivekananda, young Narin, a male pigeon, strong, unwilling to accept anything. But when he did accept something, it would be final and irrevocable. You know, that's the thing. Ramakrishna knew who Vivekananda was. And there's a lot we can talk about, about that relationship and mystic visions, but we won't. Today, let's just keep it grounded. And let's just talk about what happened to Narayan in his involvement, in evolution as a mystic. So young Narayan, you know, he's testing Ramakrishna. He would even, you know, Ramakrishna said, I can't touch gold. I can't touch coins. It stings me like a scorpion sting. So Vivekananda, young Narayan, would sneak coins into the, the, the sofa or the, the bed without... Paramahansa knowing, just to see if it was true. And then Ramakrishna would sit down and go, yow, he'd jump out because he was burned. So like that, you know, Vivekananda would test him day in, day out. And the interesting thing is, Ramakrishna actually gave him visions. He would like put his foot on his chest and push and send him into Samadhi. And at first he thought he was being hypnotized. He was frightened by this. He'd be like, what are you doing for, to me? Stop, stop. My, I have my parents at home. And then Ramakrishna would just giggle and take him out of it and say, okay, okay, all in good time. Isn't that sweet? Ramakrishna was playing with him. He would give him these glimpses of the divine and a guru can really do that for you. So anyway, finally, because of these experiences, because Ramakrishna conveyed to Vivekananda, young Narayan, an actual felt sense of religion. That's why sometimes I look at when people type things in the discord and you immediately know that's not coming from experience. Can you, can you tell? You just feel like, oh, that's a concept. You read it in a book. You know, at the end of the Sermon of the Mount, it says very clearly that the Christ spoke to them, not as a scholar, but as someone with authority, meaning as someone who spoke from experience. There's a big difference between like red book religion and actual religion. And that's what Ramakrishna gave to young Narin. He couldn't find that in his other circles. He, I mean, it's to all of our credit that we're interested in this stuff on an intellectual level even. That's wonderful. That should be celebrated. But to truly have an experience, now that's something else. No. That's why I get a little bit frustrated sometimes with illusionist language. You know, like, oh, I can't. Anyway, so, um, because it's just mind stuff. Anyway, um, young Narin starts to accept Ramakrishna as a guru. Why? Because Ramakrishna is giving him real experiences. And that's how a disciple tests a guru. The guru is teaching Ramakrishna. And Ramakrishna, sorry, Ramakrishna, the guru is teaching Vivekananda. And so Vivekananda accepts him as a guru, but not yet an avatar. 
You see, Vivekananda said, I don't, I don't care that he's an, whether he's an avatar or not. It doesn't matter. To me, all that matters is that he is a deeply spiritual person with a vast appetite for spiritual life and a wonderful knack for teaching students. He was just a great teacher and a great person. And that was enough for Narayan. It was enough to meet such a great person and accept him as a guru. That's it. Who, who needs to talk about avatars all that? You know, what's, what's the point? It, it's not helpful to one sadhana to talk about all of that. So Narayan wasn't interested actually. But you know, it will kind of nag at you, right? If everyone is saying your guru is the avatara, eventually you start to wonder, is my guru the avatara? What does that even mean? So the important thing is Narayan doubted this throughout the entirety of his relationship with Ramakrishna. He accepted Ramakrishna fully and irrevocably as a guru, but not yet as an avatara. And at the very end of Ramakrishna's life, you know, he has throat cancer and many of his disciples have left him because they can't handle their guru being sick like this. And the core disciples stay with him. Uh, before I said, you know, it's kind of interesting. Ramakrishna is almost training his direct disciples to defend true spirituality. So the sick Ramakrishna is perhaps a metaphor for the sick spirituality of the world. And the disciples now have to protect and heal that. So they're almost getting a real-time kind of training as to what to do in the world. You know, to restore religion, dharma, really. So anyway, this is happening. And one day, Vivekananda, young Narin, is alone in the room with his guru, Ramakrishna. And Ramakrishna is on the bed, you know, with a sore in his throat, obviously in a lot of pain. And Narin thinks, just thinks, he doesn't say, he thinks, could this really be the avatara of the modern age? Because the idea really in Vaishnavism and Hinduism is that you need to keep re-upping. Have you ever been in a rave and then your molly kind of fades away and you need to re-up? So it's like that. You need to keep re-upping. The Rama came and then we forgot Dharma. And then we had to send Krishna. Krishna came and then we remembered Dharma and then we forgot. And then Chaitanya, Buddha must come and then we forget. And then Jesus comes, forget. Chaitanya comes. So we need to keep reminding people about the Dharma, you know. Um, so Ramakrishna then, he's the modern avatara, meaning he's here like Jesus was here uh, to, to remind us what true religion is. Just according to the needs of this age, you know. So Vivekananda, young Narayan, was like thinking, is that true? Is he really the Jesus of our age? And he thought, if he can say it now, if he can affirm it now in the midst of all this pain, then maybe I'll accept it. And this was just a thought. And on cue, Ramakrishna says something like, um, the one who was here as Rama and the one who was here as Krishna is now here as Ramakrishna. But not, and he goes something like, do you still doubt it, my boy? And then the next line to me floors me. And I think it's the most important. The next line to Narayan floors me. And it's the one who was here as Rama, the one who was here as Krishna is now here as Ramakrishna, but not according to your Vedanta. Isn't that a very important line? Basically what Ramakrishna is saying is that this phenomenon that is Ramakrishna can be looked at through many different lens and all of them is legit. All of them are legit. Through the point of view of Vedanta, there's no such thing as avatars. That wouldn't make sense to have a specific manifestation of the divine. From the point of view of Buddhism, it might not make sense that the Buddha is an avatar. But from the point of view of like devotional religions like Christianity and Vaishnavism, that's perfectly sensible that there is an avatar, that God comes down in an imminent human form. So Ramakrishna in this statement is both affirming his role as the avatar and delivering his central message, which is there are many ways to look at one truth. He's not saying, I am the avatar, accept me. He's saying, I am the avatar from one point of view. <laughs> and his message is, each will accept Ramakrishna based on their own aptitude and their own like kind of development. And to Narayan's credit, because by that time he had developed so much as a spiritual aspirant, as a sadhaka, because he had opened his intuition, which last night we you know, talked about, Pratiba, that light of intuition, because he was so you know, absorbed in his intuition and so open and receptive, he knew the truth of that statement. And apparently he fell to his feet and that's when he gave his full acceptance to Ramakrishna as an avatar. But he never spoke of it. Not in the West, at least. You know? So that's the beautiful thing. And then I was thinking, you know, Narin, a man of uncompromising intellect. No one can take Narin for a fool. If you read his writings, you know, this isn't a sentimental, gullible zealot. This is not a kind of religious fanatic. This is a man of keen, precise intellect and tremendous integrity, a male pigeon if ever there was one. And if Ramakrishna is good enough for Vivekananda, then Ramakrishna is good enough for Nish. 
<laughs> because I fought on the dust of the feet of Vivekananda. How great is Vivekananda, the hero of the youth of India. And his guru was Paramahansa Ramakrishna. Now, the other point I want to make is, notice Ramakrishna's central message was really radical and innovative at the time. So when a Shakta came to Ramakrishna, that is a worshiper of Shakti. When a worshiper of Shakti came to Ramakrishna, Thakur would treat them and teach them as a, a Shakta. He would talk to them about Durga and Kali and teach them about that. When a Vaishnava came to Ramakrishna, he would teach them about Vaishnavism. You know, when yogis came, he would talk about Shiva Samhita or some yoga stuff. He always spoke to his audience based on their own spirituality. The interesting thing here is he isn't trying to convert anybody to anything. He's not trying to turn a Shakta into a Vaishnava. And he's not trying to turn a Vaishnava into a Shakta. He's saying the one you call Krishna is the same as the one you call Kali. But if you love Krishna, worship Krishna. You see? Oh, Thakur is getting some flowers. <laughs> it's his birthday. <laughs> some flowers for Thakur. But, uh, so it's like the one you call Krishna is the same one as you call Kali. So if you like Krishna, worship, worship Krishna. You don't need to become a Kali Bhakta. What's up, what's up with that? Ramakrishna's message was meditate on any form of God that's pleasing to you. Do you believe in God with form or without form? Oh, sir, I believe in the formless God. Okay, that's good. That's true, but don't say he can't have form either. How can you limit God? How can you say God cannot have form, only can be formless? How can you say God can only have form and not be formless? So you see, this in this sense, Ramakrishna was the ultimate syncretist, the universalist par excellence. He taught to his audience and he always was interested in making a shakta a better shakta. A Ganesh worshipper, a better Ganesh worshipper. A yogi, a better yogi. A Vaishnava, a better Vaishnava. That was his kind of central theme in his teachings. So universality of all religions is a very important teaching from Ramakrishna. A famous parable from Ramakrishna is the lake. He said, look at all these people. They come to the lake. The Muslim collects water and calls it Pani. The Hindu collects water and calls it Jal. The Christian collects water and calls it in English, water. What, which is it? Is it Pani, Jal or water? See, the name, it's just different names for the same thing. And that's his parable kind of fleshing out. Ekam sat vipra bahuda vadanti, a saying in the Vedas, you know, which is truth is one, but it can be spoken of in different ways. Truth is one, but it can be spoken of in different ways. And Ramakrishna, his life was the veritable embodiment of that sentiment in the Upanishads and the Vedas. So in some sense, it's innovative for his time. In another sense, it's simply an embodiment of an ancient idea from the very dawn of Indian spiritual civilization. That's the central message of Ramakrishna. Now, when Vivekananda came here to the West, one interesting thing is people asked him, what's your mission? What are you here to do in the West? Because he, he would say, you know, as the Buddha had a message for the East, I have a message for the West. What did he come to do? Well, he would often say to people, I'm here to make Christians better Christians. And that's the truth of Vedanta. Vedanta is not a religion. Vedanta is the science of all religions. And if you are a Christian, studying Vedanta should only affirm your Christianity, should increase your passion for the Christ um, and uh, devotion to sadhana. And that was Vivekananda's message to make Christians better Christians. He said, God forbid that the Christian become a Muslim or that the Hindu become a Christian or that the Muslim become a Zoroastrian. You know, each of these faiths are legit and good and perfectly um, able to conduct you into the same destination. So you might as well just double down on what you got. You know, the principles of Vedanta will help you do it. So that was, I think, a message that I really want to talk about. So notice now what's happening. We live in a community on the internet, especially where more and more syncretism is being valued. In fact, my entire appeal on TikTok has been that message of Ramakrishna, that all religions are one, that each path in and of itself is legit. doesn't mean that other paths aren't because it is. So like people are really kind of rallying to that flag, right? That flag of universal religion. And people are starting to practice syncretically and mix and match and find comparisons like Angela says so beautifully. Shiva is essential to the Christian tradition, asceticism, renunciation. The Christ is the ultimate Shaiva, wandering about the world like a mendicant. You know, it's hard to understand for a lot of Christians why Hindus. Hindus love the Christ. Because in India, if you live in like Rishikesh, you see the Christ every day. I mean, not the Christ, but like people who represent that ideal, wandering about, lustless and greedless, like the wind, unattached to anything, you know. So in that sense then, um, Vivekananda is here to teach the universality of religion and that's what you're seeing now and that means that somewhere behind 
this newfound love for universalism is perhaps the influence of Ramakrishna. Maybe it's not yet understood to be Ramakrishna. We don't know, yet know that name. And maybe we don't need to. You know, I, I fully am convinced that many avatars we don't even know about. They came and went and none the wiser. But their influence is being felt in ways that are so subtle that we don't even understand. Bodhisattvas are casually sculpting the trajectory of history to save religion whenever there's a low ebb of spirituality. So Ramakrishna's central message was the universality of religion? What? There's universality of religion now. Isn't that really interesting? And by the way, this is a statistic. Um, at this time in history, there are more people in the Catholic Church, in Judaism, in Christianity, in Hinduism, than at any other time in history. Not only is there more people, right, in general, but these people are turning to religion. So all the religions of the world are growing, all of them. That's interesting. It means that all the religions, Judaism, Zor maybe Zoroastrianism is kind of ebbing out, but most religions, they're growing. And that means that they're alive, that a fresh jolt of life has been given to all these major world traditions, which is exactly what Ramakrishna wanted to do. Okay, one more thing before we screen the movie. And I think it's his message about women that I wanted to highlight. I wanted to highlight it today because it's Friday and it's Masha Arada's day. Uh, she was born on a Friday and she is the embodiment of the divine mother of Kali. And Angela, who also is an embodiment of the divine mother, gave us a wonderful reading, a prayer, praying the rosary. And Afi said, we feel the presence of the mother. So let's talk a bit about that. In Hinduism, there are a few attitudes that one can have to the, to the divine. So in Christianity, you know, we get this sense. Yeah, we get the sense in Christianity that God is only father. But that's not true, actually. In the Christian tradition, many attitudes to God are actually being exemplified. So Teresa of Avila, for instance, isn't relating to God as a father. That's not her thing. That's Jesus's thing. Like Jesus sees God as the father and he always talks about the father. You know, I, I and my father are one. I can have my own. Son. So he loves God as that patriarchal kind of father, teacher kind of guy. But um, Teresa of Avila, she's relating to God as Jesus, as her, almost like a lover or a boyfriend. I don't know when you read Teresa's kind of writings, Teresa of Jesus. Oh, there's such a kind of uh, love for Jesus as a boyfriend almost, you know? And we call this in the Hindu tradition, Madura Bhava. Madura means God is a beloved. God is a lover. You'll see it in Rumi's writing as well. Yeah, as a husband, you know, the husband of Christ. Christ is my husband. So notice, God is not just the father. God can also be the husband, you know. Then there's also people who worship the baby Jesus. For some people, it's nicer to worship Jesus as a little baby. That is the attitude called Vatshalya. Vatshalya means God is a child and I am the parent of God. So worshiping baby Gopala, like little Krishna, or Ram Lala, baby Ram, or baby Jesus. These are all the attitudes to God where I'm the parent, I take care of God. I give him a little food every day. I make prasad and it's cute. God is cute. Ganesh, you know, I think a lot of people who love Ganesh have this kind of bhava, which is Ganesh. Who doesn't love a cute elephant? Very cute. So um, that's, a, that's a perfectly legit attitude. What about God as brother or friend? Jesus Christ, the friend, you know, that's called Shaktya. And then what about God as master? Thou art the master and I am the servant, eager to serve God. Dashya, it's a great attitude. Or even Shanta, that peaceful contemplation of the formless God. These are all great relationships to God. Now, one can say that Ramakrishna innovated a bit because he added a new relationship. We have like 10, 10 kind of traditional relationships. You know, God as a peaceful kind of awe-inspiring presence, a respectful relationship, but with a little bit of distance. God as um, uh, 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 a friend, God, also I should say God is a master and I'm the servant. God is a friend. God is a mother. God is a lover. A lot, lot, of, a lot of these different attitudes. But what Ramakrishna added was God is mother and I am child. You know, this idea that God is mother, you know, not father, but mother. And mother is different than father. Mother loves unconditionally. Father's love, you have to earn a bit. And you, father might judge you a little bit, but not mother. Mother just loves you as you are. You cannot be a sinner in the eyes of mother. So Ramakrishna, his mother worship was important because he hated the word sin. He couldn't tolerate it. He says, take it out of your textbooks. He said, by dwelling on sin, you become a sinner. He who thinks of sin becomes a sinner, you know? Um, and he says, this is the correct attitude to have. Say, I took the name of the mother, meaning Kali or Durga, but any name, you took the name of God. What sin can touch me now? Though I have committed innumerable offenses, I am now perfectly clean because I took the name of the mother just once. I chanted the name of Kali just once. So I'm, I'm cleansed. I'm absolved. 
And you know, people have gotten Christianity wrong because nowadays there's this idea of like Catholic guilt and sin orientation. But if you look at the actual practices of the Christ, it's all about forgiveness. You know, like forgiving one's sin and forgiving other people's sin. Who amongst you has not sinned? Let he cast the first stone. You know, and the idea that like you should be able to go into a church, confess your sins, do an ab- absolution, like saying Hail Marys or whatever, and actually feel like you're absolved. You see, the point of Christianity is not dwelling on sin. It's to kind of have a mechanism to get rid of it. So any real tradition won't want you to dwell on guilt and shame and sin. So Ramakrishna was really against sin because it was wrong in the eyes of the mother to be like that. The mother just loves you and you ought to love her. So in his love of the mother, I think Ramakrishna exemplified a very positive and empowering attitude to women that perhaps in spiritual life was lacking. Now, a lot of men started to see women as like an obstacle because it was causing in them lust. And they were like, oh, this is there was a kind of harmful attitudes towards women. Ramakrishna would not tolerate that. If he heard anyone talking down about women, he would say, that's the wrong attitude. Women are the veritable embodiments of the divine mother. Every time you see a woman, she should remind you of the divine mother. You should venerate and worship women. So when Ramakrishna got married, the peak and the consummation of Rama's sadhana was to actually install Ma Sharada, his wife, on the altar and worship her as the living Kali. You know, and he even offered his rosary to her. You know, he put the rosary at Ma Sharada's feet, yeah, Sita or whatever, just see her as a divine, and gave his sadhana. He said, The fruits of my sadhana I give to you. And Ma Sharada, of course, went into samadhi, otherwise, she would never agree to, you know, <laughs> sit on the dais. He was in a trance personal state and they were both in samadhi and Ramakrishna is worshipping Masharada and and that was his last formal practice. After that, Ramakrishna did not do any formal spiritual practices. So you could even say the peak of his sadhana, the culmination of Ramakrishna's practice was his um, kind of devotion to to his wife as a mother, as as, as the mother. Even once Masharada asked, how do you look upon me? You know, just asking, how do you look upon me? You're my husband. How do you look upon me? And he says, I look upon you as the divine mother herself not just in concept, but in truth. So until we can see others as literally God, we have work to do. And so Ramakrishna gave that message of seeing women as the divine uh, feminine expressing itself. And so when Vivekananda came to America, this is very interesting. His opening words to America, which by the way, it's, it's profound because these are the opening words of the East to the West. In other words, uh, Vivekananda is standing now as the ambassador of all yoga. Without his speech in the Parliament of World Religions in 1893 in Chicago, without this speech, you would not have, none of us now would be practicing yoga here in the West. We would not be together. There would be no yoga studios because that idea of yoga, of Hindu spirituality, was not known in the West before Vivekananda. The idea was that they're just barbarians out there, you know, some heathens, idol worshippers. And Vivekananda came and, you know, and his opening words were, my sisters and brothers of America. Isn't that interesting? he said my sisters and brothers sisters first and he wrote beautiful letters about american women he said america he would say like american women they're as pure as an icicle on diana's temple you know how beautiful um anyway so this love and veneration for the woman as mother as sister was very important to ramakrishna and you saw it and exemplified by vivekananda so now when we are having more enlightened ways of being together not lustful ways of like, you have something that I need, I'm going to seduce you, but ways of being together in co-ed partnerships are like brother and sister, you know, to really see each other as siblings and be together in spiritual familyhood, I guess, is perhaps Ramakrishna's influence as well. The final thing I'm going to say is Ramakrishna is God, right? The Christ is God. Buddha is God. How much they practiced. Doesn't that blow your mind that God can forget that they are God? or that God needs to practice at all, Ramakrishna's life was marked by intense austerity, intense sadhana. As we were saying in this morning's lecture, he um, practiced all the sampradayas, all the schools of Hinduism, one after the other, not all at once. He didn't spread himself thin over so many practices that he failed to go into each one in depth. He practiced each one with such intensity, with such devotion that he mastered it quickly. The Christ went to the desert for like 40 days, fasting and meditating and praying. Regularly, the Christ would go up to pray, right? The Christ would say, wait up, I'm going to go pray. He would commune regularly with God. The Buddha meditated incessantly and they all had teachers. You know, so Ramakrishna had so many teachers. Christ had many teachers. When Christ stood before John the Baptist, wow, 
Wasn't that like such humility? The Christ is God, but he's getting baptized by a man, by John the Baptist. He's kind of humbly bowing down and he's learning from John and John is perhaps sitting with him and breaking some bread and teaching him about how to be a, a person, uh, what he's going to do and all that. Hello, Liam. Welcome, brother. Talking about avatars. And I'd love to hear, maybe you talk a little bit about your proof. I, I, was, I think it's so cool and fascinating. Yes. So in closing, uh, then notice this. Ramakrishna, the thing about him was a deep love for spirituality. Remember, as a priest in Dakshineshwar temple, without any formal kind of training outside of like how to just do a tantric puja, he had such a love for Kali, you know, such a deep veneration for Kali. And he felt like, well, if you're real Kalima, you should reveal yourself to me. This is the ultimate Indian attitude to spirituality. Don't take things on belief. If God is real, one must see her. If Samadhi is real, one must experience it. If the world is an illusion, one must experience that. Don't just talk about it because you read about it in a book. It must be actually true for you. Speak from experience. You know, that's the authority. So Ramakrishna said, hey, you revealed yourself to Ramprasad, which was a 17th century, sorry, 18th century mystic. Why not me? And you know, the thing is, every night, Ram, you would see Ramakrishna scraping his face on the floor and crying until the face bled, you know. And when people said, why are you crying? He would say something like, another day has gone by and the mother has yet to reveal herself to me. Another day has passed in which I have not seen the Holy Mother, Divine Mother. Can you imagine that kind of yearning for God? And that yearning alone was enough because the culmination of this yearning was the discovery that life is a heartless void without the real awareness that is God. And so Ramakrishna, remember in the Tantric Puja, there are a lot of weapons you know, involved in the Puja, tridents and swords. So he's alone in the temple. He's in this state of tremendous instability because he longs for God and God's not revealing herself. He sees his eyes fall upon a sword and he has a suicidal ideation. He thinks there's nothing left for me in this world. This world is a heartless void. I might as well throw myself on the sword because I failed to realize Kali. This is God. God is talking about failing to realize God. Isn't that interesting? So he takes the sword and he's about to fall on the sword. And lo and behold, he's given a vision of Kali. Now, do you think his spirituality ended there? It actually began there. Once he had a vision of Kali, he knew that spirituality was real, which created in him a tremendous appetite for sadhana. At that point, he meets a teacher named Bhairavi Brahmani, who, by the way, is from the Shaiva tradition. She walks around with a trident. We know that because her name is Bhairavi. So she typically would walk around with a trident and be teaching Tantra, you know? So now he became excited about Tantra because Kali is the goddess of Tantra. So then Bhairavi Brahman, he comes and teaches him Tantra. He learns all the intricate rituals of both left-hand and right-hand Tantra, masters them all. When he finishes that, do you think he's done? Hardly. Now he gets interested in Vaishnavism. So after having the vision of Kali, he goes and starts to practice Vaishnavism and takes on a new guru, you know, and that new guru teaches him. And finally, he has a vision of Radha and Krishna. After having that vision, he's still not done. Now he longs to experience non-duality. So when the student is ready, the teacher comes. Tottapuri comes. Tottapuri comes and teaches him non-duality. And he masters that in three short days. What it took Tottapuri 40 years to achieve, Ramakrishna, with the intensity of his sadhana, did in three days. Finished it. And after that, he, was, he, did, he finished Hinduism, right? He like finished all the levels of the video game called Hinduism. He did Tantra. He did Vaishnavism. So Tantra is Shaivism, right? He did Shaivism. He did Vaishnavism. He saw Shiva Kali. He saw Vishnu uh, in forms of Rama and Radha. And he experienced the non-dual Brahman. So Hinduism finished. Was Ramakrishna finished? Not at all. His, he had an insatiable appetite for spirituality. He got curious about Islam. Remember the Mughals had invaded India and there was a lot of Islam there. So Ramakrishna said, I'm not going to set foot in the temple. For the next however long, I'm just going to dress as a Muslim. I'm going to eat Muslim food. I'm going to only hang out with Muslims. <laughs> and he took a Sufi teacher and he learned Islam and perfected himself through it too. He had an ecstatic vision of Allah, you know, he didn't stop there. Now his final thing was Christianity. You know, you could even think it's like the last level of Ramakrishna. Christianity was, he, he even describes it as kind of like a really purified force. He almost couldn't handle it. In one experience, there was an experience of pure energy coming from a picture and it almost blew him away. And he had to beg the mother to please stop, stop. It's too much. <laughs> Christianity was like really powerful, you know, but he got interested. He practiced it. He did his sadhana intensely and he experienced the Christ who he described as a foreigner walking into the Panchavati where he did his practices and embraced him as a brother. 
Remember, Ramakrishna is the Christ, right? But here he is having a vision of himself in the past, embracing him as a brother and also a foreigner. The idea that a foreigner can be your brother is important too. You know, the universality of all religions is also the universality of all people. It's the understanding that my tradition is not better than your tradition. We are all just walking to God in different ways. So Ramakrishna then had all these experiences and he kind of developed his own brand of syncretic practice. So these are the three things we can learn from Ramakrishna. One, um, the universality of all religions and Vivekananda champions that. He's here to make Christians better Christians. Two, the worship of God as mother, which creates very innovative and positive attitudes towards women and sexuality and spiritual life. And three, the intense love for sadhana. So if the Christ had to do that much work, if the Buddha had to do that much work, if Ramakrishna had to do that much work, shouldn't we do something? You know, <laughs> Shouldn't we be practicing a little at least? And that was ultimately the message of his disciples. Now, the last thing I'm going to say, and I know I keep saying the last thing, but I just can't. I, this, is, this is going to be Monday's lecture. Monday's lecture is how do you judge a guru? You know, and hopefully a guru will come and speak to us, a great Swami. But um, Monday's lecture will be about how to judge a guru. For now, let me just say that we should be cautious of one-man shows, like these cults of worship, where it's just like one dude, and he is the dude, and he's like the charismatic dude, and he might be a great dude, but one must judge the tree by the fruit. It can be the greatest tree in the world. If God no fruit, who cares? What's the tree worth to me if no fruit comes? Let's look at the fruit of Ramakrishna. So Ramakrishna was a great tree that produced innumerable disciples. And every single one of those disciples, both male and female, became saints, became tremendously important, both in the West and in the East. Who are his disciples? Swami Vivekananda, the ultimate ambassador of yoga in the West. To judge Ramakrishna, judge Vivekananda. You know, it tells you more than anything about, more than enough about the teacher. But it's not just that, Vivekananda. We've got Swami Brahmananda. Read Eternal Companion, Swami Brahmananda's reminiscences and biography. And you see, here is one whose words taste like an enlightened master. Brahmananda, spiritual giant. Swami Turiyananda. You know, Swami Abedananda. Swami Ramakrishnananda. All these names are spiritual heavyweights. They're household names in India. So can you imagine being a teacher who has 20 powerful disciples? And not only men, Golatma, Yoginma, who are today uh, responsible for very powerful movements for women. There are schools in India that wouldn't be there if not for Ramakrishna, educating women in science, in hygiene, in technology. When Vivekananda came to the West, it was not to teach the West yoga because the West needs to learn spirituality. Yes, that, but also to teach the East materiality because the West is good at something, you know. It's really good at legal systems, at hygiene systems at staying alive in the world, at building civilizations where the lights work when you want them to, for crying out loud. We don't got that in India. You know, you click the switch, click, 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 and you have to pray for the lights. You know, apparently the, the people from Tokyo, a, a Japanese railway company visited India to study how the rail system works in India. And this was their conclusion. God exists. <laughs> So India needs help, man. India needs help. Its women need help. India's women need education and empowerment. India's political systems need help. India's, uh, you know, India's produced great scientists, of course. But India's uh, application of that science in terms of civil service needs help. All of these things are things that the West must teach India. And that's exactly what Vivekananda did. He brought Turiyananda and Abedananda and all to the West. He took back Sister Nivedita, an Irish convert, you know, uh, and, and some people say, was Nivedita a Hindu? And most people say, no, 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 she's the, a Christian. <laughs> he took her back and she taught Indian women stuff. So that was the great cultural exchange. And do we not feel it now here in this room all together, all of us from different parts of the world sharing and speaking the same language? Do we not feel it on TikTok where all these people are practicing different spiritual practices? Do you not feel that people are becoming interested in religion and spirituality? Do you not see the great revitalization of religion? It's restoration as a proper way of knowing in this world. I would argue, and I cannot prove it, but I will argue that all of that has to do with a very minorly known 19th century um, master named Paramahansa Ramakrishna. And perhaps his name will become a household one in some years. It might take a hundred or so more years before, you know, it took 300 years before people knew about Christ. Maybe, or maybe not. Maybe this will be a small movement, but today I'd like to celebrate that movement. So today is an offering to Ramakrishna. May today be the day that we awaken to spiritual life and intensify our sadhana in the name of who I believe is the, one of the truest avatars 
like any of the avatars. So Jai uh, Ramakrishna, Jai Sri Ramakrishna, Jai Thakur, Jai Sri Guru Maharaji Ki Jai, Jai Ma Sharada, the embodiment of Divine Mother, Jai Vivekananda, who is Shiva himself, Jai Brahmananda, the eternal companion of Krishna and the spiritual son of Ramakrishna. Jai Turiyananda, Jai Abhedananda, Jai all the disciples of Ramakrishna. Jai, Jai, Jai. I pray to Holy Mother, I pray to Ramakrishna, I pray to Swamiji that we may attain to the highest states of spirituality and that we might make that manifest in each and every moment of our life. Om Shanti Shanti Shanti. Harihi Om Tatsat. Shri Ramakrishna Arpanam Mastu. May this be an offering to Ramakrishna. <sighs> <It's Thakur. laughs> in his inimical, inimical smile, beaming at us. This is, by the way, a picture of him in uh, Samadhi, which is, and this is a picture of Vivekananda in Samadhi which has never before happened, by the way. We've never actually had a picture of someone in Samadhi until Yogananda and, and, and Ramakrishna and all that. So, um, Liam, brother, would you be so kind as to tell us a little bit about this proof? And I'd love to hear you explain the second premise a bit more, especially. Oh, absolutely. Certainly. Yeah, so uh, I love thinking about avatars. And one thought that crossed my mind is, what makes an avatar an avatar and a non-avatar a non-avatar? But then I thought, you know, that's a very, the dualistic way of thinking, you, you know, you're either an avatar or not. So I thought the non-dual approach was to be less quantitative and more qualitative, something what of like a spectrum of avatars. And some are just more on the avatar spectrum than less. So I break my proof down into three parts of what makes an avatar an avatar. And the first part, I'm doing it in a different order. The first part is the second part, but whatever. <laughs> the first part is about um, what it means to exist logically from a mathematics background. And it's really surprising that the answer is that uh, to exist by definition, you are an exception to some universal law. Which is which is very you know you're you're rebellious against the universe as existing for the purpose of of uh, being an exception an, an exceptional object of some sort, and this isn't esoteric. This is like literally the logical definition of a quantifier's existence and universality. And so I think a a classic example that comes to mind is suppose we have the statement there exists a non-black bird. Suppose it's true. Suppose there was a bird that was not black. Notice that that statement is entirely equivalent to saying that the following universal law has an exception, which is that there are only black birds. So if you consider that universal law, there are only black birds. The existence of a non-black bird is equivalent to that universal law having an exception. So I used that as the definition for what an avatar is an avatar of, because first of all, to be an avatar, you need to be a being, but you're an avatar always of something, like you're an avatar of yoga, an avatar of wisdom, an avatar of whatever, of Shiva. Um, so my conjecture is that you are an avatar of that universal law that you exist as an exception to. Um, so that, that is kind of the first two points. And the, the third final point that ties everything together is that since being an avatar, a, like a, a real more on the avatar spectrum is, is more divine, you're an avatar of something more divine. Well, we need a qualitative way of understanding what it means to be more divine. And the definition that I go with is that divinity is simplicity. And because we all often associate God with purity, like very pure, very subtle. Um, and another way of seeing this is that divinity is, or the divine is universal truth. The universal truth is the divine. But 
as I've said before, what does it mean to be universal? Well, it's something that applies to everything, everywhere, always. But that's a that's a pretty ambitious property to apply to the whole universe, everywhere, anything, and always. So whatever that property must be to be universal, it's got to be like something really vague and something really simple and subtle, because only then could it possibly apply to everything. To be so, fundamental, right? Yeah, fundamental. fundamental essence, nature kind of thing. Yeah, the essence. Yes, it's, it's all just vibing with words related to subtle and simplest or simplicity, and uh, and fundamental. And so that to me is divinity, simplicity, universal truth. Um, so combining all of these things together, I say that avatars are beings incarnate of the most fundamental, the most subtle laws, because everyone is an avatar of something, but more, some people are avatars of really, really subtle things, the most divine, specific, fundamental laws that they exist to prove, to become, to shed light, aware of, to acknowledge these subtle universal laws, these subtle truths of the universe. And so that is what I think an avatar is. Stunning! What an elegant and stunning. So let's let's break break this down a little bit, Liam, if you don't mind. I think there might come some questions, of course, in our listeners, um, and let's tease out some of these ideas. So you know, I like how you say an avatar. Like you know, you're linking that word avatara to incarnating and incarnating to existing. So the idea is like, okay, I exist, and that means I incarnate. So really, this is a movement into imminence. So we'll call this the imminent dream, right? We often call this the imminent dream. To come into imminence is to incarnate, to exist. Now, to exist is necessarily to exclude. Because if this exists, it must define its isness from the not its, you know. And in Shaivism, I'm sure you've all heard, the mistake that Shiva makes, not a mistake, an innocent error of assuming it's this body and this mind is a necessity. It's a logical necessity. Because to be this body and this mind, it must negate the other bodies and other minds. So Liam, I like how you said it's, to be an exception to a universal law, you know? Okay. Now that universal law and your second proof is stunning, which is for something to be universal, let's think about what's common between these two things. This is not a good example. They're both kind of like the same material, but maybe what's common between these two things, you know, they're both. And, and for our listeners in the podcast, you can't, can't quite see what I'm holding up. I actually got a lot of messages of people saying, dude, I can't see what you're, because <laughs> so much of this is look at this. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, I'm holding up a Tibetan singing bowl and a thing. And in fact, I'm gesturing around the room wildly now, like a monkey swimming in an ocean. I'm gesturing around the room to say, look at all the stuff in the room. What's common to them all? And say like, what's common to all things everywhere at all times and all places? So this is the quest for the fundamental essences, right, Liam? And you're saying, wait, simple, subtle, fundamental, and that's what makes it universal. So the simpler it is, the more essential it is, the more fundamental it is, the more universal it is, yes? So an avatara then, what's that? Precisely. Right, right. And maybe religion, the exciting thing about it is that it's a quest for essences, a quest for the real, quest for the unchanging. So then if we say an avatara is a special word, we're all incarnations, we're all existences. The avatara is an incarnation and an existence, but we call it an avatara because it's an incarnation and existence of the subtlest of those, the most fundamental of those things. So would you say then that it's the most inclusive existence? Oh, very much so. Do you have, you've heard of Jordan Peterson before, right? Sure. I would imagine. Jordan okay, now this, this statement is about to divide our viewers into two camps. Now that I you know, just said that. I know. Don't, don't worry. <laughs> you got you to gotta pick and choose Jordan Peterson words. He's a, he's a great psychologist, terrible politician. But he, did a, he had one quote on what it means to be a, a savior. And mm-hmm. I think this ties it in very well. He said that mm. a savior is a being that when we or the general population project what we think is a savior onto it it matches it's like it's like a combination of everyone's ideals and so ah, i think that really relates yes, to yes. avatars general most inclusive nature yeah so okay we have this universal law you know whatever it might be 
the ultimate universal law. And let's say on one end of the spectrum, you have the most contracted, like assholic being, the ultimate samsara and the ultimate worldling. And that person uh, by definition is going to be the like ultimate exception to that law, the ultimate exclusionary kind of thing. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum, you have someone who is the most inclusive, you know, incarnation of that law, you know, like the one who captures the most broadest spectrum of that universality. So haven't you noticed the Buddha, he learned stuff that was very kind of exclusive to just a select group of practitioners, you know, in the forests and just kasadus. And he took what he learned and he brought the whole of India into it. He walked up and down India and taught it to everyone. Wasn't he so inclusive in his message? That's what makes him an avatara, different from various saints. Do you notice how saints can be kind of exclusionary? Have you noticed that? Many saints have only experienced one form of the divine. And for them, that's the form. It's just that form. And you know, the non-dual saints of India are kind of scary. They're wonderful. They're saints. We venerate them. But haven't you noticed that sometimes you get the sense from them that it's just non-duality with them? But actually, no, if you really study them, you'll see that these people actually love duality. When anybody approaches Ramana Maharshi and says they're dualistic, he'll say, continue doing that. He'll try a little bit to talk about non-duality, but he's, he loves that. Nisargarath Maharaj had a guru, but there are some people who are non-dual and dual who bring all the religions in, the Christ with Paul's message went onto the whole world and brought all nations. On. So I love that, Liam, because inclusivity, you heard in Liam, right? The idea of inclusivity and an innate oneness of all existence. Aren't these Ramakrishna's messages coming through Liam right now? Because, they, you know, we must look beyond the man to the message. You know, beyond Ramakrishna is a message. It's a movement and it's being exemplified now. And you can express it in logical terms which I think today Vivekananda would be happy about, you know? So thank you, Liam. You're a true credit to logicians and scientists and mathematicians and humans. Thank you for that wonderful and stunning proof. I wanted to ask you a question about Fabricio's comment. So I have some resistance to this idea that premise two is proving that things don't exist. What do you say to that? I have thought similar things before as well. I Here's something that's really interesting about uh, logical statements is all of them come in two flavors, the ones that assert a universal law and the ones that exert exist, uh, the, the assert the existence of something. Um, and you can only prove one of those two flavors without any prior assumption. You can prove universal laws without assumptions, not all of them, but some of them. But you cannot prove the existence of something without any prior assumptions. You, you can prove some of them with assumptions, but none of them can you prove with, uh, with no assumptions. So if we only believe uh, what can be proven without any assumptions, then the only thing we know to be a reality are universal laws. And we wouldn't know of anything existing in uh, particular. So that is that is what I think about Fabrizio's comment. Ah, that's good. So it's a particularity challenge. That particular things we can't just we can't you know, but we we can say that the universal laws you know they exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing okay. in particular we know to exist, but there are particular laws we know to exist or to be real. That's interesting. Uh, an example. Ah, uh, yeah. Here's a really strange example. Let me pull it up. Yes. I, I started documenting the ones that we know. And the reason the ones that we do know are the ones that if they were if it was a false universal law, it leads to contradictions. At least that's okay. that's the assumption. If it leads to contradictions, yeah. then it must not be universal, which is a is is still a subtle assumption, but it's a very uh, I think universal assumption. Right. right. Now, proof um, by contradiction. Yeah, precisely. Let me pull it up. You see, Mads is saying it's like I just heard Plato speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, there's 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 eight I know of. I call them, um, or there's or seven I know of. I call. There's one that I call the principle of unity and six I call the principles of duality. And uh, the most common example is 
is the principle of being called from within that I call. It essentially, when you convert it from logic into statements about consciousness and awareness, it goes like this. There is something aware of you whenever it is self-aware. It's a universal law, strangely enough. If it weren't the something case... Something aware of you whenever it itself is aware? Yes, yeah. I call it the principle of being called from within. So whenever it's self-aware, um, there's something aware of you now, which is strange. And whenever it's not self-aware, there's something that's not aware of you anymore, uh. which is... Which is bizarre, which is very strange, but but it's it's true according to classical logic. Wow. And so we can affirm that. No prior assumptions needed, just a proof by contradiction that this law, the call from within, is a true and existent law. Isn't that strange? Yeah, well, you know, this is stunning because I think I use the word stunning a lot because, you know, that feeling of like, ah, it's like a kind of stunning. This is, it's elegant because there is a kind of nihilism sometimes that you sense in people here in the West who misunderstand our philosophies from South Asia. You know, the Buddha doesn't, nowhere does he say that nothing is real. He's just saying it cannot be defined. But something must be real if he's affirming that there's a way out of nirvana. He must have found something. He's got to be awake to something, you know. <laughs> and it's these universal laws. He's he's awake. He's awake to nothing in particular. Awareness is nothing in particular. Uh, but it's something universal. So he's awake to universal. Now I'm sensing in that rejoinder, or not a rejoinder actually. It's just a statement. I'm sensing in it a reluctance to even accept the existent universal laws that you're talking about now. You know, like this idea that we live in a completely like nothing. And I think it opens us up to a dearth of meaninglessness that's very dangerous. You know, and Ramakrishna, often he would, he would say to people, God alone is real and this world is an illusion. But he's affirming something that's real. You know, in Hinduism, we say you cannot have error without ground. You can't have the appearance of a snake without an actual rope. For there to be an appearance, there must be a reality that's kind of appearing as something other than, you know. So a universal law then appears as things. The things themselves might not actually exist, but as you've just proven, there is universal laws and you have several of them. <laughs> I totally agree that a lot of people take nihilism out of Buddhism, uh, but nihilism is the assertion that there's no such thing as existence or universal laws. Exactly. But I think a perhaps more elegant approach is to at the very least accept the reality of some universal law, like this experience you're having, it may not be a thing in the sense of it, it, it exists as something, but maybe it's something a little more subtle, like a law, the law of your experience. Yes. And there's like that book, The Law of One. You know, that people are really liking that. A lot of people who are in this community and our listeners are very familiar with that book. And a lot of people, I think, came into non-duality in the West through that Law of One book. So that idea of law, like things being laws and law-like nature is interesting. Good, good, bad, bad, and none escape the law, says Swami Vivekananda. See, Mads saying something so beautiful where, you know, Mads, you want to elaborate on that? It would have been absolutely life-changing if I had heard that like a year ago. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, sure. Similar to what you were saying about a, a sort of nihilism, not, not even like just just existential nihilism like ontological nihilism is sort of what i was i w- i wouldn't say i was i was like really trapped in that state i was i was kind of favoring that though i guess as an ontology like and uh like acknowledging a fundamental um like ground of being um or or like even even like a law like that 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 gives uh substance to awareness like that's that's exactly what i was looking for and it took me a long time to get to something that like helped me through that through sort of like thinking about platonic emanation and, and and a vision I had like of of like a neoplatonic universe like years ago. But that's much uh 
that law is much more like <laughs> useful. It's exciting stuff, huh? To have this kind of proof because Ramakrishna, he was famous for saying, this is real. You know, he would say to Advaitins who would come and say, but the world is an illusion. He'll be like, no, no, no. It's very much real. It's the reality of the world blazes forth as it says in the, uh, Aparokshana Bhuti of Shankaracharya. The reality of, of this world blazes forth in everything and every person. In other words, you see the universal in every particular, and that's the joy of life. So Ramakrishna is able to say, my life is a mansion of mirth. Mojar Kuti in Bengali, you translate it into sometimes mart of joy or mansion of mirth. And there's meaning, you know, tremendous meaning. The Buddha's life was full of meaning and purpose. I've become in these fast few days, you know, fiercely protective of our Sangha. You know, here Angela is doing her rosary in the, in the morning. I'm protective of our Sangha over these false and erroneous conceptions of Indian spirituality here in the West that err on the side of meaninglessness, um, that challenge scriptures and toss them by the wayside as if they don't mean anything. You know, the Buddhists are wonderful at shredding scriptures, but there are scriptures for that. The Buddhists have a scriptural tradition. They're not like these punk ass kids in college dorm rooms, you know, smoking a fat spliff and saying nothing matters, man. All these are just words, man. Nothing exists, man. You know, like they're not doing that. They're not shitting on anyone's religion or anyone's scriptures, really, because they have, you know, a kind of integrity. So scriptural integrity is important. Ramakrishna defended and loved the scriptures. One of his chants was like Veda, Purana, Tantra. You know, he would just, his the mantra he was saying was just the names of scriptures. Veda, reverence. Purana, reverence. Tantra, reverence. Bhagavatam, reverence. Bhagavan, reverence. You know, he just said so much reverence. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, I'm, I want to defend our Sangha from irreverence. You know, because that is what Ramakrishna came to give people reverence. Tremendous sense of sacredness, you know. And so perhaps we can close. I'll take uh, F, F's question just a bit. I just want to uh, end the recording. As I promised Donna, I wouldn't make these too long. <laughs> but uh, they're having trouble downloading my videos off of the yoga. <laughs> they're like five-hour affairs. And they're like, dude, there's a cloud storage limit. I'm like, don't limit awareness. <laughs> but um, so let's close today. I mean, today was a celebration of Paramahansa Ramakrishna. But the message, more than the man. The man is sacred to me. You know, that's our lineage. And more and more, I'm beginning to fall in love with Ramakrishna. I'm recognizing that Ramakrishna is Shiva. You know, when I first came to Ramakrishna, my first guru, a, a devout Shaiva, my grandfather, I felt in my heart like, am I to be a Vaishnava now? His name is Ramakrishna for crying out loud. And that felt like to me a betrayal of Shiva and a betrayal of my tata, my grandfather. I was scared, you know, especially during my initiation, I had this tremendous trepidation, like, you know, and it's like my grandfather never had a problem with Vaishnavas, but just this subtle feeling of like, but I'm a Shaiva. And then what happened was Shivaratri with the Ramakrishna people, you know, at that ashram, I've never seen Shiva been given a more festive reception than Shivaratri in the Vedanta Temple Hollywood. And that's when I realized these people love Shiva more than anybody in the world I've ever met. You know, and Ramakrishna incidentally was born three days after Shivaratri. He himself went into his first samadhi at age nine when he was playing Shiva. Oh no, he had other experiences too when he saw the cranes and all that. But um, he is Shiva. I don't understand that at first, but now I know with all my heart that Ramakrishna is, as Swami Chid Brahmananda said yesterday, a hole through which you can see any form of God that is pleasing to you. So if you are Shaiva, you will see Shiva and Ramakrishna. If you are a Christian, you will see Christ in Ramakrishna. If you're a Vaishnava, you'll see uh, Vaishnavism, uh, Rama or uh, whatever. And if you are uh, formless, Advaitin, you will see that through Ramakrishna. That's what an avatar gives us. The Christ doesn't take credit. Ramakrishna resented being called Thakur, God, Father, Guru. He would say, how can you call me Father? I'm a child of the mother, right? If you praise the Christ, he would say to you, I, I can on my own self do nothing. It's my father who's doing all of this. He would tell people, go to him. Don't come to me. Go to him because I'm here for him. So Ramakrishna would say that over and over. Go to God. You know, don't come to me. I am not God, he, but, but he is. And you see, that's what an avatar does for us. Shows us the way to our own salvation. And let's just close it here then um, at that. 
So God bless all the great avatars that have come into our lives and all the ones that will come in the future, known or unknown. May their presence move us all to greater sadhana, greater inclusivity, greater tolerance, and for crying out loud, greater joy. <laughs> Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Paramahansa Ramakrishna, Arpanamastu.